Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, my colleague Tom Kenny and myself, Ronnie O'Gorman, produce a page in the Galway Advertiser with Tom's photograph and a story from Galway's past. We contact each other beforehand to see what has been published that week. And our podcast today is That Conversation. Tom, good morning. How are you this morning? I'm very well, Ronnie. Thank you. Good and morning. you yeah. are, I hope, too. Oh, indeed I am. I love this time of year. I love spring. Really is magnificent. And Galway is magnificent this time of year. You see wonderful cherry trees and things like that in people's gardens. It's just a pleasure. Excuse me. Galway yeah. is magnificent at any time of year. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, in the rain, sometimes I get a bit... Oh, no, no. In the storm, <laughs> even better. So, please do You're very lucky to live where you do. I agree, Tom. Of course we yeah. are. Yeah. Tom, I don't want to let Augustus John slip away from our conversation last week because I went home full of it in my head and I, I tried to find... I knew I had it somewhere. Michael Holroyd's uh, biography of Augustus John on the yes. inside cover uh, is the picture of John working on the Galway, the Clada triptych that he yes. was doing. And uh, yeah. it just shows you it's the only time I think it's been published other than in reality in the Tate Gallery, as you say. But it's not, it's not. I beg, I beg your pardon, I have to interrupt you. Yeah, go on. <laughs> About 40 years ago, it was published in the Galway Advertiser. Ah, Un okay. Under the banner of Old Galway. All right. Well, <laughs> done, well, yeah, yeah. well, you know, it could yeah. be resurrected. It could be resurrected. I took it out of that book, actually, at the time, out uh, of Polaroid's book. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Because it's just very interesting. Um, the other thing that we, we, we glanced at, which was, um, well, I, I mentioned the parties that they had on the flaggy shore with Augustus John and, and Robert Gregory. Uh, some of these parties were quite significant, even though there was a bohemian crowd there from Slade College in London. This would be about 1912, 1913, that kind of time. And uh, Robert Gregory, in fact, had an affair with a woman there, a fellow artist called Nora Summers. And that led to great upset in the family and prompted Robert joining the Royal Flying Corps, which he did in Renmore Barracks and uh, went off to the First World War. And then tragically, of course, he was killed in January 1918, just on the last year of the war, but that's the way things happen. And Yeats was challenged really by his wife, Margaret, and Lady Gregory, you must write a poem for Robert. And of course, he wrote four poems for Robert, the great one being an Irish airman for Caesar's death. But yeah. I just had a, a talk with Jane Murray Brown, who would be Robert Gregory's granddaughter. And her grandson, that would be Robert Gregory's great, great grandson, started school last year or the year before that and uh, in the English class in secondary school in the English class the teacher said I've got a great poem we're going to do and it's going to lead us into the first world war an Irish airman the boy puts up his hand puts up his hand put up and she said yes 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 the boy kept putting up his hand and the teacher said well yes what is it and said, that is my great great grandfather the Irish airman yeah. The teacher swept him up and brought him down to the head teacher and said, do you know 
who this boy is. And the teacher that brought him down was actually weeping. He was so moved by having that little boy in his classroom. So I'm just saying that, you know, uh, uh, an odd development from those parties was that poem and that little boy and that little boy. But anyway, anyway, yeah. So I I enjoyed our conversation last week. What are you doing this week, Tom? Uh, This week, it's a photograph of William Street about... uh, 1904, roughly, and uh, it's completely, well, it's it, the streets, the, the facades are much the same, but almost every business name has changed completely from, yeah. and there's a very much a vintage quality about the businesses of the time, and also uh, I have quoted from some of their advertisements, and they're kind of vintage as well. But one of the most important features in it is the horse-drawn tram. And uh, it's um, it's on its way back to Air Square. It's the open top summer tram. Lovely. And, uh, of course, the tramways were hugely significant yeah. in uh, Galway at the time. Yes, the tramways were very significant and important. Well, they linked the town with Salt Hill, isn't that right? It did. They opened up Salt Hill really. Yeah. And you've got to remember this: the system started up in uh, 1879. And that was only less than 30 years after the railway came to Galway. Ah. So suddenly you could have people coming in from Athenry, from Athlone, from wherever, into the station on the train. They could get on the tram and they could be in Salt Hill in a very short time. That's lovely. So it, it yeah. had this enormous effect on I Salt bet. Hill yeah, and changed it completely. It was one of the really significant things. Of course, it was also a lovely system. They had two different kinds of trams. They had an open top one um, for the summer, which was a double decker tram. And uh, <clears throat> one of the people who worked on it was Lord Haw-Haws, as he was known, yeah. William Joyce's father. And uh, <clears throat> there was actually a man killed off the top of the tram one day when uh, the then Prince of Wales and his wife were came to Galway in 1903, I think it is, and uh, <clears throat> um, there were all these banners across the street, and some man stood up at one stage on the top deck oh. of the tram, oh. and he got caught in one of these banners and oh fell to the ground and was oh, killed. Oh dear. Yeah. Oh Lord. So the 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 trams yeah. lasted until the advent of the First World War, and then mm. what happened was that the uh, the British Army they commandeered all of the horses, as they did many other horses in the whole area during the war. And that's right. That kind of put paid yeah. to it. And anyway, mm. at that stage, motorized transport was. Um, coming in it was arriving in Galway really and it was a lot more efficient and quicker and probably economical than the tram yeah but it must have been a beautiful feature of life in Galway uh, oh lovely really at the time there is an old photograph of the industrial school band on uh one of the trams at the terminus at Salt Hill which was beside the Eglinton Hotel now it's it's a little hazy the photograph but if you try to count the number of people on the tram, it's well over 70. I can't remember. Now, most of those were 
<coughs> young boys, but they were all carrying instruments as well. So uh, I wouldn't say they took 70 all of the time uh, because it was horse-drawn for most of the time. Uh, they needed two horses at King's Hill. All right. Uh, because that was a bit too steep. So there was uh, an extra horse kept stabled there at the base of King's Hill. Oh, my and, uh, That's lovely. Otherwise, it was a one-horse mm. tramway. One-horse show. I, I, I was asking, was there, is there a transport museum in Ireland? Because um, I'd love to see those trams in reality. Um, I don't know if we appreciated them enough to put them in a museum or to keep them safe. I don't know. There is one in the north of Ireland. Is there? Um, is there? There is. Uh, and there's a very major one in Glasgow. Oh. And one of the, the real highlights in that museum is a Merriweather fire brigade that they bought oh. from the fire big brigade in Galway. It I was did. a very old solid wheel job, uh, but it was in mint condition when uh, they were, they needed money to bring in new uh, literally um, machines. And uh, so they sold this. Uh, I th they probably regretted it for a lot of the time since. <laughs> I know, it's probably worth it. It's certainly, it's in mint condition. And yeah. anybody going to the Transport Museum in Glasgow should go and look at it. Well, that's brilliant. So I didn't know yeah. that at all. That's just lovely. Well, that's great. Well, I'm still, I'm afraid, still writing about Town Island, but this is, luckily it's the last week now that I'm going to do it. People must be driven mad by it. But the trouble is, once you start researching, as you know yourself, you know, one door leads to another. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's very hard to that's, stop. Yeah. That's the excitement of research. Well, and also we're lucky that we can indulge we can indulge our enthusiasms, Tom, and write as we like, really, things Indeed. that we're interested in. Exactly. But I'm writing about uh, letters that De Valera wrote to his wife, Sinead, from uh, town. And uh, Dermot Ferreter, um, I'm quoting, uh, wrote... Uh, that that in December 2000, the Gardaí was, uh, uh, seized 24 love letters from De Valera to his young wife, Sinead. They'd been advertised for auction uh, by Miles in Castle Comer. And uh, it was believed it was stolen. They were stolen from, in fact, the poor De Valera's house in Dublin. And uh, somehow they ended up in England and a family bought them there, bringing them back to Ireland. Didn't know they were stolen, obviously, and put them up for auction. But they were quite valuable and they're quite personal. Um, uh, they're love letters of a sort, if you like, uh, written from various destinations, such as Mountjoy Jail, Lincoln Jail, and the US when De Valera was there, 1919 to 1920, and five letters from Town Island. Now, right. the, the letters were returned to the De Valera family. And uh, I remember the publicity about this, and you probably do too. Uh, they were private and they were not published in full because people were very nice. Journalists in this country are very nice. They don't go for the gush as they were might in another country. But there were still one or two little things that leaked out. And uh, they included, you see, it's interesting to see De Valera, you know, the, the personal De Valera from the, the politician De Valera and the man you and I might remember, you know, in photographs and yeah. things like that. But um, 
anyway, the letters caused quite a stir and uh, they opened this window into the private devil era, which we hadn't really seen before, because for many, unfairly, they described the poor man as the epitome of joyless rectitude, which, of course, these letters prove he was certainly not that. But the journalist Keno Hegarty rather unfairly but memorably remarked that just when we were getting used to the idea that our parents had sex and enjoyed it, a further imaginative effort is now called for. So <laughs> terrible. That was most unfair. But anyway, <laughs> the letters from Tawan to his wife, we don't know what he said in them, but um, he took over uh, the directorship of the Kodernagelga um, College there in the summer and using the schoolhouse that was all the controversy over as the center for the college. And uh, there again, um, Roger Casement met him there on his second year there. And uh, we don't know what they talked about, but it's just wonderful that these two men of destiny, and don't forget 1916 was only, was only five years away. Yeah, these yeah. two men met there in Galway Bay, and I'm sure they shared some of their opinions and some of their political views on what might happen in the future. But anyway, just to poor old Casement, as we know, was executed in the same year as the, the people that took part of the Easter Rising. And uh, anyway, his body was, was re repatriated to Ireland in 1965. And I remember, and I'm sure you remember too, the photographs of Dev, um, who was an old man now in his mid eighties, still president yeah. of Ireland, uh, yeah. was standing over the grave of um, Casement, motionless, lost in thought. And I'm sure his memories must have been carried back to that day in August where they met Indeed. on Town Island. You Indeed, know. yeah. Actually, Sinead de Valera used to come into our shop. Good. Uh, she would come to Galway to visit her daughter, Maureen. Maureen. And, um, uh, she invariably came in, uh, sat down with a cup of tea with my mother and signed any copies of her little plays that we had. All, they were all in Irish. They're quite scarce now. Uh, but she got great pleasure out of doing it. And there was uh, what I remember, she was a tiny little woman uh, with a big smile, I remember. But uh, what I really remember is the very animated conversations she and my mother would have. I have no idea what they talked about. I just remember there was a, an excitement about the whole thing. And, uh, and so Maureen and Maureen, Dev, indeed, uh, Maureen de Valera, in later years, she used to cycle her bicycle into High Street. She would park it on the edge of the footpath. She would look up to the sky and she would say, don't lead me into temptation today, Lord. <laughs> and then she would go into the shop to my mother and she would emerge some time later, put the parcel of books into the basket and look up and she would say, <laughs> let me down again, Lord. <laughs> she wasn't the only one that did that. She was, oh. uh, I think, one of the 
the the forerunners of the Department of the Marine. I think she did some outstanding uh, original work on the study of shellfish and seaweeds in the west of Ireland. And um, various people worked under her, like Professor Keady, who I'm sure you remember. He would also be a visitor to your bookshop, I'm sure. Oh, indeed. Indeed. I remember Paddy uh, at one sale. We put He had a dog. He had a dog. Yes, the dog used to drink pints with him. The dog would sit on a bench, would sit on a tall stool, I remember. Yes, that's right. And Paddy would have his pint in front of him and the dog would have an ashtray full of Guinness in front of him. (laughs) And I have a wonderful photograph of (laughs) the two of them in Freenies. Yes. Paddy, uh, when uh, there's a lovely story about Paddy, um, He, of course, became world famous as a zoologist. He did. Uh, but he <clears throat> he was doing interviews one day uh, for a lectureship in college. And uh, this young man doing the interview was incredibly qualified, overqualified, if anything, and bursting with enthusiasm. <clears throat> and it was probably destined to get the job. But anyway, <clears throat> he finished off this young man, the interview, by saying, and by the way, Professor Keady, I don't smoke or I don't drink. <laughs> and Paddy said, uh, do you think you could learn? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about Paddy smoking, but he certainly enjoyed his Guinness. But in fact, and his pipe and his pipe. Yeah, but he well, loved his books. He loved he, his books. He was one of the greatest. The, the eternal search for knowledge. With Paddy Healy was just fascinating to watch. Well, he established the marine science in the college. Now is it's a it's a European uh, acknowledged uh, facility. Oh and yeah, those two beautiful boats we see pulled into the docks from time belong to it as well. They're, they've conducted quite uh, you know experimental research on the Porcupine Bank. And it's very interesting that we have this, but it was somebody with the like of Porikidi with the dog sitting beside him in a pub in High Street um, that began all that. There was a very serious side to him as well. Oh, indeed. He has left an outstanding legacy, really. Well, I think most professors and teachers should be a little bit idiosyncratic, actually, because I think they're remembered for those things, not necessarily for what they taught.